0: Welcome to the Breaking Bread Podcast, conversations about how food inspires the people that inspire us. Join me, Michelle Jobin, and my co host, Jasmine Baker, for our chats with some of the most influential and sometimes infamous chefs, producers,
1: and hospitality icons. Together, we'll uncover the compelling stories of the people behind what we eat, drink, and enjoy. Here we go. Hey,
0: everyone, it's Michelle. This is going to be another episode of Breaking Bread that I hope will provide a lot of perspective. I think all of our episodes this season really have done that, but just to give a little bit of context, as I sit here recording this intro, we are here in the City of Toronto, less than 36 hours away from a significant lockdown due to the COVID-19 pandemic. It's going to be a really rough one for the hospitality industry, particularly because we are so close to the holidays. So that's tough. Um, It weighs on our minds a lot. This is where Jasmine and I live and work. um, And so many of uh, the people that we care about have their businesses. And this is where our guest chef and restaurateur Rob Ragagnolo lives and works. And this is where his fabulous restaurant Labora is. And I go into how much I love this place at length in the episode, but bear with me. You know, when we spoke to Rob originally, it was about a month ago, and his restaurant Labora was doing quite well from a 2020 perspective. Uh, They had gained a patio that they didn't have before, thanks to the Cafe To program to help, you know, boost the availability of outdoor dining spaces during the pandemic. But I think what also helped him a lot was the experience he had and the perspective that he had gained living and working in Spain. For so long, especially during the financial crisis. So keep that in mind, because we're going to get into that in the episode. Uh, His story is a great one. His family history is really awesome. And I, I want you to listen to all of that and enjoy it. I first became aware of Rob at a media dinner I attended at the first restaurant that he was chef at once he returned to Toronto from Spain. And I remember that meal distinctly. Um, I didn't know anything really about him. And I remember uh, multiple courses of really delicious food coming out of the kitchen. And I mean multiple courses, I think over 15. Um, And it was a bold move for the city of Toronto at the time. Uh, And I remember I was sitting right near sort of the open kitchen and I kept turning around and looking, being like, who is this guy? Uh, Because he was just so really pushing the limits of how things were normally done here at the time. And looking back, I think it's because he had something to teach us. Jasmine and I both ended up working with Rob and getting to know him better through the years that we were all working on the Taste of Toronto Festival. And that's where Rob debuted the food and the concept that would later become his restaurant Labora, which is really, like I said, one of my favourites. Um, it's our special place, for sure, for me and my husband, where we go for anniversary dinners. I just tell everybody that will listen how much I love it, as much as I'll tell everybody that I love Spain. So it was during our time working with him at that festival that we really grew to appreciate Rob's ability to teach people something worthwhile about food and cooking, versus just sort of talking his way through the demo. He doesn't phone anything in, and I really respect that about him. So in this conversation, we're going to get into how he got to that place. And I think you're really going to enjoy finding out more about his journey in the world of culinary and hospitality and also his perspective. Rob Bragagnolo, we are so thrilled to have you here today.
2: It's a pleasure to be here and it's very nice to see you guys even though it's virtually but it's been too too long since I've seen both of you so.
0: Well it has although I will say because your restaurant Labora is I mean that your restaurant Labora that is me and my husband's happy place. Right. And you know this this is where we go for the special dinners and and also the the date when we have a date night out but this is our our anniversary place of choice. So the last time I did see you was we came on the patio on the patio for yeah. our anniversary. Uh and we're going to get into a little bit more about, you know, why I love what you do there so much uh, and your food. But we wanted to start out with I guess because your your story is a really interesting one dating all the way back to your family history. Right. W- can you tell a little, us a little bit about your family history in culinary and what it was that sparked your personal interest? Yeah, in of course.
2: So I was really lucky to grow up in, um, in an environment, in a household that was very rich in, you know, culinary history, because my mother and father are originally from just outside of Venice, from the Veneto region in Italy, and my mom's uh, side of the family, um, you know, for the last three to four generations have been really, really heavily steeped into food and, and drink. Um, and what that means is they had a bakery, they had a trattoria, they had a bar place where you go for a drink and a bite and it's the whole day kind of affair. Um, So, you know, when you're raised in that environment, you grow up stirring pots of risotto on a little step ladder and, you know, your mom pointing out what's a properly cooked onion and when you're supposed to add the garlic and all that kind of stuff. So it was a very natural thing for me to I think, want to get into this field because I was just surrounded by it. Um, you know, my, my dad is um, a very astute businessman, but you know, whatever he was doing at that point in time was, not, was pretty boring to me compared, compared to what my mom <laughs> had to offer, you know? Um, Cause they were baking and cooking and there was all this like, you know, family environment being very social. And so it was quite exciting. Um, so from a young age, I was really lucky to go, f- I grew up in outside of Toronto. Um, but my dad was in the travel business so I was really lucky and we would travel very frequently to Italy so I stayed in touch with the family there and so every summer my parents would um, I think for their own mental sanity would drop me off to the family in Italy for a little bit and they would take off and have a little break Um, so it was a nice babysitter situation for them Um, but also for me I got to you know immerse myself in Italy and Italian and cooking and all this kind of stuff so um, that was the, the spark of what I do now, was, was that experience for me as a young kid, um, which, you know, what a blessing to grow up that way, right? Yeah. Um,
0: Rob did not grow up eating Chef Boyardee like I, I did. No. 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 Mr. Noodles? No? Not. Was, there's anything wrong with that. But.
2: <laughs> I was a kid in the playground that was trying to trade, like, really nicely homemade, proper food for junk food. Because yeah. I was like, oh, I've never had this before, you know. Um, and in my yeah. house, we never had any junk food. There's no chips, nothing processed. And I was like, I I wanted that, you know. Like, here's my delightful, you know, Parmesan yeah. sandwich and all this Trade, stuff. Trading <laughs> like,
1: a porchetta sandwich for a lunchable.
2: <laughs> yeah. Where, where's the Cheetos? I've never had those before. I heard they're delightful. Um, oh my so, God. yeah, that, that was my growing up, Yeah.
1: Wow. Um, so it sounds like y- your family were were some of your, your greatest culinary inf- influences in the beginning. Is that the case?
2: Yeah, 100%. It's kind of funny. I think about this a lot. So it was the first sort of culinary inspiration. And then it, go- it went full circle into now it's become that again, in a weird way, where right. you grow up with that. And then because you're a stupid you know, kid, you kind of disregard this you know the the beauty of what you have in front of you and then you start to look at all these other things and then when you get a little bit older you start to realize how amazing that was and then you come back to it you know yeah. um so I think a lot of people do that obviously you know so I started off with <clears throat> my my mom and her family in the Venetian uh cooking which is dramatically different to the rest of Italy mm. um it's more in Uh, and aligned with Spanish cooking, actually,
0: okay,
2: because of this spice trade and all of that. You know, the the history of Venice is is dramatically different to the rest of Italy. Um, So they have things like codfish is very important and pickled fish and rice is very important and not so much pasta and pizza, you know? Um, So um, that was the big influence. And then after I started to discover French cuisine... And, you know, the great chefs of France. And then I moved to Spain and that became, you know, such an incredible influence on me. Um, And I kind of landed there at this really opportune moment when Spain was going through a really crazy revolution with their food and drink, uh, you know, in the early 2000s. Um, so that was obviously big and that's why I opened Labora you know
0: yeah Yeah. and I I want to get to that point where you are in Spain but prior to that did you go to culinary school was there ever sort of a a moment where you're where you were thinking I'm going to do something else or you know once you get through high school where do you go from there
2: yeah so after high school I kind of I don't know what's the best way to put this. I was sort of doing nothing, to be honest with you. I was like trying to decide what I'm going to do when I grow up, so to speak.
0: Many and of us do still there. I'm yeah.
2: Now.
1: Yeah.
2: I, I was Googling that the other day. Um, <laughs> what do I do now at this age. Um, so, and it, my dad was, you know, he's in the travel business at this point in time. So, I'm, you know, my, my early 20s. And he was the one to say, listen, I think you should go study hotel management because it has a lot to offer. You have, you know, the whole food and beverage aspect of it. There's the back end administration. Um, And so at that point in time in his career, he thought that was the best sort of education that I could uh, go for. And he was right on the money. It was the best thing that I ever did was, was do that. So I... Was you know really lucky, and I went to school in Switzerland for three years. Nice, um, which was pretty amazing. It Was literally the best you know three years of my life, and a really huge turning point in terms of you know changing how you think and your perspective on the world. And you get to see all these different cultures and things that you know you don't necessarily um, get exposed to in small town, you know, northern mm-hmm. Ontario, right? Um, so I was there and I was in a class with, you know, there was 46 different nationalities and
0: I was wow, just going to
1: ask that, like, it feels like it would oh, be man. this place where the world would come together to study. So totally, wow. totally. Yeah. I it was, saying it wow. was incredible. <laughs> yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. yeah. the a new
0: word. It's wow. <laughs> be a lot of wow today. Yeah.
2: yeah. So there was a, it was a school of, I think maybe 200 people, uh, okay. in total throughout three years. And there was 46 or 47 different nationalities. Wow. Like there was a kid from um, Burkina Faso. And then there was a whole group of, you know, Scandinavians and Chinese and Japanese. And, you know, my roommate was from uh, one year was from Seoul, Korea. And, you know, it was like that kind of exposure is pretty nuts. Right. So all of a sudden it's, oh, wow, there's a whole other world out there, (laughs) literally. And um and so it changes how you think about different cultures and people. And, um, you know, you you start to uh, I think it just you broaden your horizons, obviously, culinary wise and also just your how you look at and view different cultures. Right. You empathize more and, and all that kind of thing. So oh, for sure. Yeah. So it was really magical. Um, and then also the you know, the the educational side of things work was amazing. I had, you know, classrooms with 20 people and professors from. Um, the UK who you know taught at Oxford and all these different other schools so that side of things was incredible for me um Can and I just I did, ask in terms yeah, of Switzerland
1: is it is it similar to other areas of Europe where um the hospitality industry is is held in a higher regard than say North America so it's really considered Absolutely. a a high-level mm-hmm. profession
2: Absolutely. It's a profession. Yeah. Wow. That's great. I think, I think unfortunately in North America, there's this, uh, this view that if you are a server, if you're a bartender, if you're a cook, it's I'm doing this because I'm on my way to do something else. Totally, um, And you're looked down upon or, or, or at least people feel like they need to make an excuse mm-hmm. for doing that as their profession. Like, oh, I'm, I'm just doing this so I can save up some money to do something else, which, you know, um, part of my French, was bullshit. Right. Um, Indeed. Yeah, yeah, it's, you know, I, I, I love this industry. And so there there's people that are, I'm, this is what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm a professional. I'm going to focus on this and I'm going to be the best in this field. I'm going to study everything. And they hide in very high regard. Um, so it was nice to be surrounded by that mentality. Right. Yeah. You feel like you have a place in the world. Um, so you really ch-
1: got the business side of, of the yeah. industry by, by studying hotel management.
2: Yeah, yeah. That was great. So, the, first, so the, the way that it's structured is the first year you do all the practical side of things. You cook, hmm. um, you clean hotel rooms, you, um, you, know, you serve, and you get the whole wine experience and all that. And then year two and three is what does it take to operate a business? Accounting, uh, marketing… Uh, you know, organizational structure, leading a group of people, what happens in change, you know, change management and all those things, which is something you need right now, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) Right. And so that, that, that's really important because, uh, you know, it's like, there's a, there's a bunch of different fields out there. I feel like have that lacking. Mm -hmm. I've talked to a lot of friends who are chiropractors and doctors and all that, and you go to school for specifically for your field but they don't teach you how to run your own business. Oh, right.
0: Totally. So, yes. Yeah. I, I agree. So that, I'm, that I'm seems sure you incredibly
2: valuable. Have, yeah. You oh yeah. Stories, right.
0: I'm an accidental entrepreneur. So right. even, even more so on my side. Yeah. <laughs> um, so after that, is it directly to Spain from Switzerland or yeah,
2: it was directly to Spain because, um, So at the the last year, they set up all of these meetings or interviews for us. So you were able to choose who you wanted to go interview with. And it was the big hotel companies. Mm -hmm. So the Hilton, the Marriott, blah, blah, blah. Um, And so I took a bunch of different interviews and then was offered a really great job in Paris that I turned down. Uh, because a friend of mine was living in Spain, in the south of Spain. And he, and he said, well, why don't you come down here? I'm doing this thing, blah, blah, blah. And I took that job. And I was there for not that long because that job did not turn out to be great. Um, and I was in Marbella for three months. Okay. And this job turned out to be a little bit bogus. And then so I came back to Toronto because I was kind of in limbo and I was here for maybe six or seven weeks. And then I got another job offer to go to Mallorca. Okay. And so I got a job at a resort in Mallorca. And then, so that was two, the beginning of 2001. Okay. And I, so I went and I was probably, I think I was supposed to stay for about 18 months. And then I ended up staying there for 14 years. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it was, there was a bunch of different things that happened, um, that kind of led me to that point in time. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's how that happened.
0: So I completely, I mean, I have not been to Mallorca, but, uh, you know, I will tell anybody and everybody how important Spain is to me. Of course, uh, my husband and I, that was, you know, we, we partially got married there. Um, so I was, when I met you, Following that, I was so fascinated about uh, your journey through there. And like you said, you you landed in Spain at a time that was incredibly, I mean, their culinary history has always been important, but it was right. very much a point where they were the focal point for the world of yeah. what was happening from a, from a culinary perspective. So you had gone from this sort of management type position, but was it during your time in Majorca that you switched to more working on the culinary side of things?
2: Yeah, 100%. Yeah, okay. I I thought that I was gonna go and work in an office and be in an administrative you know situation where I was gonna you know get into a, a hotel manager kind of a thing you know um, and then uh, very quickly I realized that this was just not the type of job for me um, I'm, it just doesn't suit me I really do enjoy the sort of business side of you know restaurants and hotels and all that but day to day what gets me going is cooking. Um, So I was there, I had taken a job with the Marriott in accounting, because I wanted to learn what it took to run things on the back end. And I thought that it would be smart for me to figure out, you know, how, how accounting works and, and, you know, the, the finance of things, and so that was incredibly boring, as you can imagine. Uh, <laughs> it was horrified at hated every moment of it. Okay. But it was valuable. Like, sure. sometimes you need to learn stuff that you hate um, because it's important for life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but And then I, I, by chance, stumbled across this one day. Um, I, you know, my day off, I was traveling around the island in a car, exploring uh, the island with my wife. Um, she wasn't my wife at the time. But... Um, and we stumbled across this little hotel that it was a Relais Chateau hotel with a Michelin star restaurant. And we stopped and we couldn't afford it, but we said, what the hell, we'll have uh, lunch here and had, you know, the best meal of my life. And then I think, I think probably a week or two after that, I just said, what the hell with this? And I called them up and I said, do you have any positions available in the kitchen? And I was lucky there was a couple of, of jobs that were open. I was underqualified for that completely. Um, but then I got, you know I got an inn and, I, I, and then I ended up staying there for two years. Um, so I was you know a call me, and then after two years, I sort of worked my way up the kitchen to. sous chef, and then me and the chef of that restaurant ended up opening three places together in Mallorca, so that's why I ended up staying for 14 years. Incredible. Yeah
1: go back to you both have mentioned about this time in in culinary in Spain that was really transformational I think you said it was like revolutionary can you explain for our listeners like w- what was happening in Spain at that time to really I mean as Michelle said the you know Spanish food has always been um, incredible and beautiful and uh, important but what happened at that time
2: so it was around the, the, around the two year 2000 mark. So mm-hmm. sometime between around 19, you know, started around the late nineties and it would last so it until mid two thousands ish. So it's about a good solid, like 10, 15 years. And really what happened was um, the new, it, within Spain, Obviously it started a bit earlier but on an, on a worldwide scale the what happened in terms of like the revolution that you want to talk about is the New York Times published um, an article or their magazine and the front cover was the new nouvelle cuisine mm. and so in the in the cover was a photo of Ferran Andrea um, who was the chef of El Bulli restaurant and so the that image on the New York Times was was just this created this massive spark of France's done.
0: Yeah. And yeah. F-
2: and Spain is now the leader of this new revolution of cooking. And so it it definitely created this massive movement. And so when I was there, um, I started cooking, you know, seriously in a in a professional Michelin Star Kitchen in the year two thousand and two. Mm. And it was really, you could feel it in the air. It was just everywhere. Um, you know, everybody was changing the way that they were thinking about food. Because what El Guli did was, more than anything, started to question, why does it need to be done this way? Can we do mm-hmm. it a different way? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, can it be, if, if this is a solid, can we make it into a liquid? Can it be hot? Can it be cold and all these different things? And so that spark of different thinking just went bonkers. So the entire country all of a sudden felt like they were completely liberated from the past.
1: So was it embraced by locals? Yes they and no. Or no.
2: okay. Yeah, so there, there, I think there was a lot of people that thought this was total bullshit. Um, that this is bogus. Why am I eating a foam? Mm. You know, uh, what's liquid nitrogen? I don't understand. Um, you know, I just want my homomoniberico and my my tortilla, you know. Mm. And that was a very valid uh, concern because here's the issue with that kind of thing. Albuli did it in such a beautiful way because they had the resources because they um, they created it. They were very, very diligent about how they went about things. Um, it's an incredibly hard thing to pull off. You need a kitchen brigade of 40 people. Right. So what happened, though, was, you know, Jose, who's got a little restaurant with two people, is like, I'm going to do this kind of cooking. And you can't pull it off without those kinds of resources. So right. it ends up feeling really contrived. Mm. And the flavors are not there. Because a lot of what they were doing was transforming what me and you would normally have eaten, let's say, like as a solid, and now it's a, a gas or an air yeah. or whatever it might be in a foamy. In order to do that, you really need to know the science behind it, and you need to have really beautiful, strong, bold flavors. And it takes a lot of people to pull that off. So there was a there was so many imitators that ended up bastardizing that whole mm-hmm. way of thinking. Um, And not a lot of people had the opportunity to go to El Puli, you know, like Mm -hmm. almost nobody did when you look at the amount of reservation requests they had. So um, I don't think anybody really fully understood how magical it was, unless you had the opportunity to eat it, you know, or, or, you know, in modern times, maybe you you had a chance to go to tickets in Barcelona or something like that. Um, But it was a really amazing time um, because I feel like the youth of, uh, of Spain and sort of that generation of cooks felt very liberated. Um, and, you know, an amazing group of people, not just El Bulli, came out of this with, um, with you know, and they're still obviously still still around right now doing beautiful food. And it, and it created this, uh, this thinking of, well, if it doesn't have to be that insanely revolutionary, maybe I'm just going to really delve and think about rice, for example. Mm. So I'm going to focus on rice and think about all the different things that I can do with rice. And and so I think the really smart and astute uh, chefs out there started to develop that thinking and apply it to different fields and kind of give it, you know, taking some traditional cooking and applying some different thinking to it. And there's been a lot of really beautiful, um, you know, outcome of that.
0: It feels like it was, you know, definitely a time where just the, the, the world of possibility opened mm-hmm. and people were just thinking about food in a different way. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like why don't we dive into and I mean, I think didn't Al Buli have like a giant like laboratory type? Like didn't they have like an entirely different sort of space where they were being creative in there and then transferring that to the restaurant?
2: Yeah. So they were the first, they were the first to do a lot of things. And that's kind of why it was so revolutionary. You know, they're kind of like the Beatles in that respect Mm -hmm. where they're doing things for the first time. And so people, and and so that's why it left us such a mark. They were the first restaurant to say, we cannot develop so many new ideas if we're trying to run a restaurant every single day for 12 months of the year. So I think around, you know, I, I think it was around 96 or 97, they said, we need to set up shop for six months and go test recipes because it's all brand new. Nobody ever wrote any of their recipes before, you know, me and everybody else can go and reference Escoffier or, you know, Mm. any, any other recipe book and you have a reference point. Mm. So it's easier. You go and look it up and you're like, okay, more or less I know how to make this dish. Um, because somebody had, has already done this, they've never the things that they were doing, nobody's ever done before. So, the testing process is very lengthy, and you have to be really diligent about documenting things and getting it down. So they had to take six months of the year to work on those recipes and nail them down for the upcoming season. Okay. You know they they developed eighteen hundred different recipes in the span of 10, 10 years. Incredible. That's bonkers, right? Yeah. Um, so you can't operate a restaurant. And do that at the same time. You just have to shut down and, um, and focus on that and then open for the season. So, I mean, there's not too many places that can do that, right?
1: No. no. <laughs> not the most sustainable model. No. Um, no but not. a dream
0: if yeah, you can do it. Absolutely. We, we want to talk about um, what, I guess, what led you back here. Uh because we we you mentioned you were in Spain for now, 14 years and you opened three different restaurants. But yeah. what so let's talk about the journey that led you, or let's just talk about you, you went you were back in Toronto and yeah. then of course you uh start opening wonderful places here as well. So I'd love to hear more about that. So
2: it, it kind of boils down to um there's two big factors why I came back. So first and foremost, um My family's from Toronto. Yeah. And so me and my wife both started getting, you know, towards the big 4-0. And then you're thinking, you know, my mom and dad are getting a little bit older and her, she hasn't seen her sister in a while, have like, you know, lovely family. And so you you start to contemplate whether you want to have that distance between yourself and the people you love, Mm
0: -hmm. you know,
2: for the rest of your life. So we said, okay, I think it's probably time for us to, mm-hmm. to try to make a move back. And then the other big factor was the the economic crisis of 2008-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, that was massive. It, it was really, really bad in Spain. Yeah. I, I'm sure as you've heard, right? It was, it was a lot more devastating to the European economy than it was... I think to the Canadian economy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it became increasingly difficult for, um, you know, restaurants to really thrive and do well. There was such a marked difference in Mallorca where we were uh, pre-economic crisis and and after. Meaning, you know, imagine Mallorca is a tourist island. It's like Ibiza, Michelle. Yeah. Um, So pre-economic crisis, You had December, January, February were kind of slower months and you still had tourism, but there was, it was quiet. So you kind of just went on a bit of a, you know, on a bit of a pause, but the rest of the year was booming. There was crazy tourism from all over the place. But then when the economic crisis hit that period of time where you were busy on that island was reduced down to about four to five months only so it was tough. Um, You know, airlines kind of cut their flights and hotels weren't operating and all that. So it was difficult for us. We were, you know, you, it was like a heart attack. It was, you're doing absolutely nothing for five months and then the whole world comes to Mallorca and then back down again, you know? So it became less and less enjoyable to kind of operate that way for, Mm -hmm. for us. And we started to started to resent it a little bit you know Mm. it wasn't it wasn't that enjoyable so those combination of factors we decided okay well we're going to come back to toronto um things are you know canada is a beautiful country um Mm. you know yesterday i was having a conversation with a group of friends friends of mine saying you know this whole COVID situation and having a business and or doing anything has been so remarkable in canada Um, as compared to other countries, you know, Mm -hmm. I talked to people in Spain and in Italy about what they're going through now as restaurant owners. And it's just such a disaster for them. And Mm -hmm. I feel really fortunate to be in in a country like Canada. So, you know, we feel we've always felt that Canada was home, even, even, even though Mallorca is beautiful and Spain's gorgeous, there's a part of you I think that needs to connect with the culture that you grew up in. Um, And, you know, the human connections that you form when you're younger they stick with you forever, I think, you know, so Mm -hmm. I feel closer to people who, you know, were raised and born in Canada than anybody Mm -hmm. else in the world, right? Right. Just how it works, I think. So yeah, we came back. um, We took a couple years to go back, um, to come back, meaning we decided to come back, we started to move here in 2012, but we were going back and forth from Toronto Mm -hmm. to Mm Mallorca, like every couple months. Cause I thought that that was going to be a feasible plan. <laughs> I, that sounds great. That sounds good. Oh, I love this idea. I'm going to go back and forth between that. You know, <laughs> I'm like these people on Instagram who have like YYZ and another, another yeah. city. Yeah. Like,
0: goes, like, goes to LA once. Yeah. Some yeah. Right.
2: Exactly. <laughs> exactly. YYZ, LAX. Um, I thought I was going to do that, but you know, it's not that cheap to travel back and forth between Spain no. and Toronto mm. and every three months as you I'd can do imagine it if it
0: wasn't yeah <laughs> yeah
2: exactly um so then eventually we said okay this is just bonkers we can't do this anymore but my wife was like you're insane i don't know i've been with you for this long um and so and so we said okay i'm gonna we're gonna be here and settle down and then the plan was always to open you know, a proper restaurant, (laughs) not that, not that the other places I did were not proper restaurants, but you know, like what Labora is right now.
0: Yeah. Um,
2: And so it it took, it obviously took a couple of years to figure that out um, because it's a big place and it takes, you know, it's a big investment and all that. And I was, I was sort of going back and forth between, do I want to do an Italian Venetian place Mm. or do I want to do a Spanish place? Um, but I feel really comfortable with Spanish food and it's just, um, it still is the thing that kind of gets me going every day. Um, so I decided on Spanish food.
0: I'm really and we're glad, so you, glad did. you did. yeah
1: we're so <laughs> glad you did. Yeah.
0: <laughs> However, that actually, I mean, we, I mean, uh, Jasmine and I were, we actually talking about this and, and Jasmine, I, you brought up the, will you do anything that is homage to your Venetian heritage, right, Jasmine? Mm-hmm.
2: I would love to, I've always, I've been thinking about doing something like that for, I think 20 years. Mm. Um, and I would love to do something um, that is Venetian cuisine. Cause it's really, it's really magical. It's very distinct, yeah. but it's also very familiar at the same time. It has that beauty behind it. Um, so I don't know. I mean, things are so insanely crazy right now. <laughs> um, I, I'll keep it in my back pocket for sure. Um, maybe. Fair. Yeah, maybe Well, more. if
1: you ever want to do a, just even a test run, a yes. night of, you yeah. need some game you've okay. got to I'll, right here. I'll yep. call
2: you guys. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> We're here so, forever. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And now here's a little bit on one of our partners. Saver Ontario is a local food and lifestyle content hub where you'll find the best of Ontario food, culture, ideas, and experiences. From chef, makers, restaurant profiles, and recipes, to long reads on food culture, great entertaining and home decor tips, you'll learn not only why local food matters, but how to embrace the local food and lifestyle movement. I'm an incredibly proud contributor with Sabre Ontario and I cannot wait for you to check it out. Head to SaberOntario.ca for the full experience and follow us on Instagram at Sabre Ontario for daily doses of local love. So we want to we want to talk a, a bit more about Labora. Um, okay. it, we we love your restaurant. Um, it's a stunning representation of Spanish dining, and um, you know the, everything from the environment to every bite to every sip. And we wanted to just we want to expand a bit more on what of all the influences you've had. What did you pull together to create this this beautiful restaurant?
2: Yeah, I mean that's a great question. Um, and thank you for the compliments. Um, so. The, the inspiration behind the restaurant was the markets of Spain. Mm-hmm. That was the first thing that I, have, I was thinking of um, when I thought about Labora. Because we, um, so every Spanish city or town even, it could be the smallest town, all of them have these incredible markets where it seems like the entire town or city gathers every morning. And you get to see what's in season, what's fresh. You chat with people, you buy, you, know, you you know bump into other chefs and people in the, in the restaurant business. Um, and even people who are not in the restaurant business will go there. The locals still shop at the market because it's so visual and you can pick out the fruits and vegetables. You see what fish just came in. Um, and it's, you know, the seasons in Spain are micro seasons. It's like, there's two weeks of this and there's six weeks of this vegetable. And, um, so it was this central place that was vibrant and bustling, and I fell in love with them. And so I would go there every day. I was there five days a week. Um, and I would just go have my morning coffee, and I would go chat with the veg guy and go chat with the fish guy and, and see what's, what's happening and, and just sort of catch up on everything. And it was it really sparks a lot of creativity because you, you know, you look at these ingredients and you think, Oh man, I got to have to do something with this, you know? So the, that environment was the central inspiration for the Bora. And I took a lot of decorative items from markets in, in Spain. Um, I don't know if you can see, but there's like hanging peppers behind yeah. me. Mm-hmm. Um, those are from the central market in Palma, de Mallorca. Um, because, you know, there's this bounty of, of, uh, Vegetables and they preserve these peppers and you use them all year long. So that was the setup for it. And then the other inspiration was tapas bars um, Mm -hmm. because it's such a central um, part of of life in Spain. You know, it's a it's a wonderful way to eat, but it says a lot about who Spanish people are as as human beings. They're very social. They get together all the time. Um, They need to congregate together. They need to go out. Um, you know it's I, I think you know spanish people it's like taking away their oxygen if they can't go out to eat you know five days a week kind of thing and so that was the setup we have that you know a massive bar in the restaurant um and all of these different little areas to make it not just a boxed mm. restaurant where there's a bunch of tables and chairs and it's a, a square rectangle this is It's a bit of this crazy curving uh, restaurant that people don't understand, but (laughs) it reminds me of, uh, it reminds me of the markets of Spain and and tapas bars. And that was the central inspiration.
0: love that. (laughs) And I mean, visually, if you've been there visually right away, you walk in and you go, oh yeah, I get this right away. Like you get that point of reference. Yeah, you're transported.
2: Anti-minimalism is Spanish. (laughs) (laughs) I'm okay with that. Massive cluttered messes is what they're going for, you know? Mm Um, which I love so much.
0: Yeah. I want
1: to talk about, um, you know, you mentioned it a little bit about the the beauty of um, living in Canada, especially difficult times like this. Um, We want to talk about how, um, COVID-19 and the quarantine has affected your business and the things that you've done, uh, to pivot, um, the most overused word of 2020. Um, <laughs> yeah. but you know, when, um, when quarantine hit, uh, you started a, a, a stunning takeout experience, uh, of your offerings and, and also with the help of uh, cafe TO, um, built yeah. a beautiful patio right at yeah. on the street at Spadina, which I'm sure you'd always dreamed of, but never yeah. felt possible. Yeah. Um, can you um, tell us a bit about this experience? Um, you know your mindset in approaching your business.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's a lot of yeah, pivot is such a romantic word, isn't it? I mean, it's you know, it sounds like we've all decided to. This is how I I'm strategically planning to do yeah. this all along. Yeah. It's more like holy. What? What am I? Gonna you can do say
0: now? it. It's fine. Yeah. But, you know. You know, holy fuck, <laughs> Where?
2: What am I going to do now? Um, yeah. So it's survival mode, mm-hmm. right?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, which there's a lot to be said about that. I think you know you, you don't ever come up with amazing ideas when your life is perfect and you're on the beach sipping Coronas the whole time. You know, you come up with really great ideas and creativity when you're under pressure to do things. Um, right. um, so, literally, we got shut down. I think it was March fifteenth, mm-hmm. and I was sitting on a ton of inventory for food. And I'm kind of in a good position in this situation because I I'm the chef and I own the restaurant and I'm very hands-on. I'm here all the time. So I'm like, there's no freaking way I'm going to let this food go to waste. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just said, okay, I unfortunately have to let everybody go, including myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I just was okay, what am I going to do with this food? I'm going to, I have to do some takeout. Obviously there's nothing else I can do. Um, And so I just started testing, you know, how, how, what's paella like to go Mm -hmm. um, and did a bunch of tests on it. And it's actually a really incredible product for takeout. So I was very lucky in that, you know, I obviously have friends and colleagues who are doing food. That's not great for takeout and Mm -hmm. I feel terrible for them, but you know, paella seems to work um, quite well. And so I just started, you know, um, I started cooking away and spent a long time. Uh, it was just me and my wife doing takeout. Um, wow. And it was challenging. But, <laughs> the, you know, th- there was moments where you want to you wanna cry and pack it all in. And then yeah. there's moments where you're like, okay, well, there's a whole other side of my business that I never had before. So this is pretty cool. Um, and... You know, it's the only way that I would have managed to come up with a whole new revenue stream mm-hmm. with for my business. If I had, if I wasn't forced to do it, I wouldn't have done it. Right. So now I have another side of my business that I never had before. So that's pretty exciting, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm pretty happy about it, to be honest. And then the and then the patio thing again. That's, you know, I was begging for a patio for the last two years. My landlords and the city. And it was kind of in the works already. Okay. But God bless the city of Toronto. They literally were just like, okay, just go for it. Just do it. You know, they made the process so easy. And I had amazing contact at the city. And I have a bigger patio than I should have had before COVID. Mm. Um, You know, it's 45 feet long and I can fit, you know, a lot of people out there. So, again... The silver lining in all of this for me is, you know, I have a whole, I have two brand new revenue streams for my business and it's, it's made it much more dynamic. So once we get through this storm, I'll, I'll be in better shape, you know?
0: Do you think, you mentioned earlier what the financial crisis did um, in, when you were, you know, in Spain. Yeah. And I'm going to think there's a lot of restaurateurs that weathered that time, but maybe not all. Do you yeah. think any of that prepared you, I mean obviously this is a different situation but do you think sort of can you draw any connections between those two times or, or ways that you've had to be like okay let's be creative let's do this you know in order to weather yeah. that storm
2: I think I, I think this storm for me is easier to weather because mm. in Spain right. I had no options mm. you're on an island in the middle of the Mediterranean and there's nobody coming
0: right. and right. the people
2: that are living there don't have any money to spend So what the hell do you do now? You know, in this situation uh, I have options. I have, I can do takeout. I can get creative. There's still, you know, 6 million people living in the GTA that have money that they're making because they have businesses that are, they're in that, and they have disposable income. So if I get creative and I, if I hustle, I can probably get through this and make it work. So this situation for me is better. And, you know, going through hardship um, previously just, I think the best thing out of that is your mindset, you know. Mm. So I'm going into this thinking, wow, this is this is kind of a easier for me now because okay. you know I've gone through that already. So my mindset is different. I'm dealing with struggle and change, and you know, having your you guys know what it's like when you have your own business. Every day is yeah. freaking crazy, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. it's <laughs> up and down, and all these things. You know, it's an emotional roller coaster. Am I good enough? I don't know. Am I going to make it? <laughs> You know, and dealing with just your own head um, and, and hardship in the past allows you to deal with things today in, in a much better light, right?
1: It's it's knowing you've survived it once, right? Totally. You survive something once and then you're like, oh, okay, I can do this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and, and hopefully that will teach so many of us I think a lot about the younger generation yeah. either you know just starting their careers and and you know hospitality is never easy right. but if you're just starting your career and you're faced with this I'm like wow those kids yeah. not be able to do anything
2: <laughs> yeah totally you know and yeah you have to put on a bold face sometimes and and, yeah. and lead them you know and just say like hey listen this is crazy but we're gonna get through it somehow you know um because I have a group of people that have never done anything like this before. Mm -hmm. This is nuts for them, you know, and they're worried about where their paycheck's going to come from in the next two weeks. Right. So,
1: well, I want to, yeah, that's, that was one of the things we wanted to talk about is how do you, so you were, you know, you've, you've been able to bring some people back. Yeah. um, Because, you know, business has increased. Um, How do you lead and inspire a team now when, when they're, they're probably, they must be constantly scared. And, you know, living in fear. How do you, how do you lead in a time like this?
2: So I I think the things that I try to do the most is teach, Mm -hmm. first of all. So in the kitchen specifically, um, I, so whenever, first of all, whenever I get scared and, um, whenever I'm stressed out, I feel the most creative for some reason, um, I think it's like a defense mechanism or something like that. <laughs> like I can't, I can't do anything else, so I'm just gonna think about. I'm gonna really focus on food right now, mm. and I block out the rest of the world, and I'm gonna like absorb myself in a beat for the next three days, and just what we're gonna do with a beat right now, um, and come up with different dishes and different ideas, and then so that kind of spiral of creativity you can pass on to the rest of your team, and you start talking about different ingredients and really delve really deeply into different subjects. And so that then leads me to teaching them different techniques and what do we do with this and telling them stories and teaching them about chefs that they don't know about and bringing books in and stuff like that. So it keeps them occupied. Um, And it, you know, hopefully enriches their lives a little bit by learning different things about their craft.
1: Um,
2: And, you know, I think relaying, relaying stories about, you know, when I was in Spain in 2008, the whole, the whole island got shut down and, you know, they, we'll, we'll get through this. And there's different things that we can do, um, you know, and focusing on takeout and different avenues and just kind of keeping everybody focused on what's next. Mm. You know, the last couple of days have been tricky here for us at the restaurant mm. because there's, you know, the city wants to shut down uh, dining inside restaurants. Yeah. And then the province does not want to do that. Uh, and everybody has their own agendas. Yeah. And like you know let's let's get let's talk to each other maybe city and yeah
0: yeah let's communicate yeah maybe
2: behind closed doors first and then let everybody know what you want to do but
0: yeah listening to you talk it brought up something and I think I mentioned this to Jasmine when 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 we were talking about what we wanted to ask you about when we sort of really met through all working together yeah at you know at at Taste of Toronto at food, food festivals and what stands out for me, having worked with you more than anything else, is that when you have a group of people to speak to, you have always brought to the table something to teach. Right. You're not, and, and I have always really appreciated about that. I remember you. There was one uh, sort of cooking demo session that we did together, and and that the audience is always so engaged. And, and that has always fascinated me about you because you're, you're like, okay, let's talk about salt. And everyone's like, we're going to talk about salt. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> right, right. like But you did like a salt-crusted fish and you, right. you, you, you have, so I wonder if that goes back to, because you talked about your family, you know, really early on in your life, your mother always having something to teach you in yeah. the process. I feel that you always have something interesting to teach people. So right. do you credit that back to, I mean, I guess you could maybe link it to everything that you've done in your past, but I, that really stands out for me for you. Mm.
2: Well, I think, I think, you know, if any of us look back to the the moments or, you know, that we enjoyed the most, you know, working, it's because you had a mentor that was, you know, that mentor probably taught you things and explained the why uh, behind why you're doing, you know, the reason why you're doing something. And so that was my mom when I was growing up, my, my business partner in Spain. Um, you know, when I started working with, for him in his kitchen, he was the, the way that he would explain a recipe was he would teach you why you mm-hmm. do this, you know? And that, you know, I was very lucky to have some great teachers in my life. And I think you pick up on that and you just pass that along, you know. Um, I think it just makes life a lot more interesting when you realize you're, <laughs> what you're doing is for a purpose. And there's a reason why you're doing something. You know, we're dressing a tomato in this way because you know, that's why we do it.
1: Yeah. Um,
2: and so if you tell a younger cook, not just, okay, you have to do it this way. People you lose people's interest super quickly. They're mm-hmm. like okay, this is cool, um, but if you show them why you're seasoning, you know, tomato and with these steps, um, then it opens up this whole other avenue of thinking for them. They're like, oh, okay, mm-hmm. I didn't realize that. Um, you know, and then you, it starts to, you start to think about what other vegetables do you season in different ways, and it's not all across the board the same thing. And you know, um, it, it, you have to teach. So I was really lucky to have, you know, great teachers in my life. And I think I, I just want to pass it along.
1: So great. So yeah. great. We love yeah. that you do that. <laughs> um, so we want to ask you a couple of um, uh, fun things. We, we okay. always ask this question because, um, we get some great answers and we get some really absurd answers, <laughs> it makes them great too. Um, yeah. so we want to ask you, um, what is your go-to comfort food? What is the thing that you like to enjoy on your day off?
2: Okay. I mean, that's a, it, that's a tough question, right? Like, I think because every single day it's kind of different, mm, okay. like, do you guys, you guys probably crave certain foods Sure. During during the year at different times mm-hmm. of the year of the yeah weather.
0: totally yeah like,
2: totally and then different days of the week you have different cravings so I have uh, a mild love affair with A and W. really I, I like just,
0: where this is going. Yeah. I
2: really think they, they, they those people are doing just like an incredible job. Um and so the little like the chicken buddy burgers, oh, I yeah. really love those. Yeah. yeah and the one there's a couple of like new ones where they have like jalapeno or something or a bit spicy. Yes.
0: And they've done like like crusted jalapenos or oh, something yeah. like that.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Delicious. Um, <laughs> so i uh, yeah, I have um a mild obsession with that. I'm trying to get that situation under control. <laughs> and and then I am you know, I think like everybody in the world and I I love pizza so much. I think it's mm. the most magical food in the world. Yeah. And I want to eat all of it all the time. And it reminds me of being a little kid and it's just like the most glorious food ever. Um, and I I I really love Dr. Odiker's like frozen, you know, the frozen pizza. Yes, really? Yeah, yes. I think it's fucking good. Is great. it? Did yeah. they just
0: have they have they just nailed have- that that whole system of frozen pizza. Not a great
2: pizza at all. It's really not a great pizza. <laughs> That's okay. But there's something about like sticking it frozen in the oven and it comes out, and then you're at home on your day off wearing like a hoodie and yeah. you're watching Netflix, yeah. and you get the mushroom one. You put like arugula on it and drizzle like truffle oil, and it's freaking. Oh, you've given
0: it an upgrade. Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
2: it's so good. <laughs> I love it.
0: But I, I love it. See- this is the answer I love because Dr. you are the Ortikers. chef. Like I said, the you're doctor. you are the chef that makes some of the most magical food that I know. And and I, I love to go to your restaurant, but I love I love to hear this. I love <laughs> to hear that yeah. you're at home in your sweatpants and your hoodie, yeah. putting a frozen pizza in the oven. Just
2: frozen pizza. I just
0: love it <laughs> so much. It makes it. me
2: happy. I feel like a little kid, I think. You yeah.
0: know, yeah, this yeah. is baby Rob on the playground yeah. trading his uh porchetta sandwich exactly. for uh, doctor exactly. <laughs> <or> frozen pizza.
1: <laughs> I love it.
0: Uh, so, so please, I mean, I we couldn't love that answer more. Are all those answers? Can you because we want people to find you, whether it's to come eat on the patio or inside when we can do that, or takeout, or any of those things? please, yeah. uh, let our listeners know where they can find you what the address is of your restaurant the social handles all that kind of stuff
2: so it's um the website is labora l-a-b-o-r-a dot t-o like the city of toronto yep so labora.to and we are on the southwest corner of king west and spadina
1: In downtown four,
2: Toronto. downtown toronto 433 king street west
1: Wonderful. and your instagram handle
2: at Rob Bragagnolo is my personal one, and okay. the restaurant is at Labora Restaurant.
1: Fantastic. Yeah, Rob, thank you so much for sp- spending time with us today. It was so nice to see you and speak with yeah, like you, to you too. Yeah,
2: yeah. it was yeah, lovely. I Hopefully, uh, we can. I, I'm reminiscing about you know Taste of Toronto. I missed that yeah, so that much. Was it
0: much. was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was a lot of fun.
2: I, I miss that. I can't wait to get back to
1: that situation. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I can't wait to see you make a gigantic paella again. Yeah, I'm there I love to
0: love Nothing more. I <laughs> that was the best. Thank All you right. guys so
2: much. Thanks,
0: See you bye. soon. Bye bye. Okay, that's it for the show. Thank you so much for joining us. We will be back again soon with another great guest to talk about delicious things. But until then, if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so at breakingbreadtalkingfood at gmail.com.